So, last time there was an inauguration, uh, we, uh, three of us here, were kettled against the, uh, I believe it was the National Center for Assisted Living's Offices in Washington, D.C., which is a cool memory for that place, uh, around 12th and L. um, And uh, I guess we didn't get a chance to, like, really watch in real time the inauguration of of Donald Trump because we were were busy. uh, but what, what, now that you had a chance to, you know, you know, watch Joe Biden's inauguration, you have that experience again. Do you have any highlights uh, from yesterday? Uh, we're recording this on January 21st. Um, but uh, yeah, any, any highlights from from Biden's inauguration? Was, was it the fashion? Was it uh, was it was it Lady Gaga's uh, stirring uh, a national anthem? What 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 sticks out to you about yesterday? I think for me, it's the first time I've ever actually watched an inauguration ever. Um, right. So so that was probably the first time I've ever seen that degree of kind of pomp and circumstance like ever put on stage. Um, and although there were very few people in the crowd, which made it kind of seem a bit, I think, anticlimactic for viewers. Um, yeah, sure. I, I can't remember ever seeing a presidential inauguration before. Yeah, I think that like uh, I, I watched it mostly because I, I thought something bad was going to happen because, you know, the, there was like a lot of right wing uh, mobilization over the past few weeks. I was like, oh, what's what's going to happen at the inauguration or around the country, more or less. But nothing really happened. It was like a kind of a boring day, honestly. I think that's why people watch most live events. That's, yeah. why, that's why I personally watch most live events is for mm-hmm. the opportunity to see something that would be so embarrassing or horrific that they would yeah. not show it again. You watch you watch uh, public events for the same reason people watch NASCAR. Yes. They, they don't the want to see the They want to see something horrendous. <laughs> yeah, so that's why I didn't really watch it all. Uh, it okay. seemed like a boring spectacle to me. Uh-huh. So um, I mostly just saw the bernie memes all day people just kept texting them to me and that's just kind of what took over the day sure um he was wearing mitt- mittens ella yeah <laughs> a co in mittens yeah anything that guy does becomes a meme yeah. I, I will say my favorite part of the inauguration is when garth brooks went around uh without a mask and just like hugged all the former presidents so i was yeah. like yeah get him Get him. My, my favorite part of that was being in texas and uh people around me being like why why is garth because garth brooks is like him and tim mcgraw and dwight yoakam are like the three democrats who sing country music and uh people in the south hate being reminded of it because they're like beloved so people are like what's what garth brooks doing there i feel like garth brooks has like no political feeling at all he he will just he's it's the the lowest common denominator the man wants money and the idea of like we need to come together and unify he's like ooh, i smell it i smell it so he wasn't gonna miss it. Well, I mean, like like Democrats, he's there's no difference between him and a Republican, except he's not explicitly racist. So I think that's where the commonality lies. Just explicitly. Implicitly. explicitly. Um, yeah. So uh just in case for people tuning in, obviously we have some special guests today. We're joined by two of my co-defendants uh from the J20 case. Uh, which happened on Inauguration Day in 2017, which around 250 people, uh, protesters, journalists, and just, you know, pedestrians were arrested arrested, and uh, prosecuted in mass for allegedly uh, conspiring as a group to do crimes against windows, uh, charged with approximately eight felonies, in my case anyway. And uh, I don't think anyone was actually convicted by a jury of uh, any 
felony. So good job on that one. But the the J20 case, uh, I feel I still feel kind of proud of it just because I, even though it sucked, uh, it, it felt uh, like it kind of set the tone for like increased kind of anti-fascist mobilization. Anti-fascism kind of entered the public consciousness under the Trump administration. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's It's been weird looking back on it, but uh, just to introduce our guests, we are joined by uh, Dr. Michael Lodenthal, who is today the director of the Prosecution Project and executive director of the Peace and Justice Studies Association at Georgetown University. Uh, uh, Michael, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're also joined by uh, independent journalist Ella Fassler, whose work you can find at Truth Out, The Nation, and more. Ella, glad you could be here. You're welcome. Thanks for having me as well. Absolutely. So uh, we did it. Am I right? Four years ago, we hit the streets of D.C. with one goal, President Joseph Robinette Biden. Am I right? <laughs> no, I'm just... I'm not sure. I'm not sure that was anyone's goal. Uh, okay, just me. <laughs> Thank you all for your service, by the way. We, we did it. I, I was the one anarcho-Bidenist among the uh, J-20 block, apparently. No, I mean, I, that is one of the funnier things about the conversation around uh, Biden. I guess the Republicans, like, and just the right, I guess, like to do it with all the Democrats, but they like uh, pretend that this guy is like has something to do with Antifa or is a communist of some sort, or et cetera. It's always entertaining the, the way people kind of just tie this vaguely center right party called the Democrats with the with the far left uh, radicals is always entertaining. Um, but uh, you know, looking back on J twenty, because I haven't, I, I guess I don't do this maybe uh, too often. But from you know J twenty from twenty seventeen from the court proceedings, it's been four years, right, since we went through this. What uh, does anything stick out in your mind about that day or the ordeal that we all went through? Yeah, so that was my second protest ever. <laughs> okay. um, and yeah, I, I, I vaguely knew what a black block was, you know, um, and it didn't disappoint for sure <laughs> that day. Um, but, you know, I feel like a lot of memories from the kettle weirdly stick in my mind. Um, like I remember this Humvee rolled up and everyone started singing the Star Wars theme song or like, or something from Star Wars. I haven't seen Star Wars to be completely honest. Um, but that was really funny. And like all of the songs we sang together in jail. Sure. Um, that was really fun. Um, and I guess... Yeah, I attended a few of the, I, I attended bits and pieces of the trial. So that really sticks out to me too. Yeah. Mostly how absurd the prosecutor was. Um, oh, yeah. Jennifer Kirkhoff. I'm not sure if, I, if y'all went to the trials. Um, but she did a lot of hand motion, a lot of hand waving around like people breaking windows. And that was really hilarious because she was just, she would just like move her hands. Um, in really wild ways throughout the opening and kept saying uh, the group did this, the group did that, just trying to like instill that it was some giant conspiracy and the worst thing to ever happen in, in that city. Um, and then fast forward four years later and, you know, the fash kind of one upped us on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who knew? 
you know? it was that easy? You know, we, we could have yeah, tried that. Maybe we should just store in the Capitol, huh? Yeah, why not? Um, uh, no, we know why not. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yeah, not tactically doesn't align with our yeah. goals. Um, so what you're saying is like maybe the real yeah. Antifa are the friends we made along the way. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, now I have friends all across the country, which is like one good thing to come out of this, I guess. Like, I think that's sure. our one strength is our solidarity that we have with one another. Yeah. And I think they're right. They're facing intense. They're going to be facing somewhat intense repression, not on the same level we we did. But I don't. I think they're going to be snitching on each other more so than working together. I I feel the same way. They're just going to roll on each other as fast as they can. We're already mm-hmm. seeing a ton of that. Yeah. Well, Michael, what, what, yeah, what, what sticks out to you about J20? Yeah. Um, what sticks out? I mean, it was, um, I mean, I, like, maybe unlike Ella, I'd been um, involved in organizing and attending street demonstrations for, for, for a while. Um, so, like, I mean, I, re- I remember going to pretty, uh, at least at the time, what were intense street demonstrations, and I guess, like, 1998, 1999, um, you know, up until, up until now. So, so I think for me, and, and having lived in D.C. over 10 years, um, I think what struck me most was the way the day went um, in an unexpected way. So I think one of our, like, you know, retrospectively, one of the things we did wrong is that a lot of, um, and, and I wasn't involved in organizing the, the day's actions, but I think uh, as far as the kind of um, movements in the streets and people's idea of, of how the police were going to react was really based on a, on a false premise. Um, you know, you know, I mean, even when people were kettled, you know, like the chorus of, they're not going to arrest us. DC police don't mass arrest because they get sued. You know, that was like kind of the common understanding in that several hours of just standing there in the cold. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a serious failure. So if I, you know, I look back on like what stands out to me, it's like, wow, um, people really had the wrong idea going into it. And I really like the idea that, um, um, you know, that one of the reasons I personally joined that, and I think one of the reasons a lot of people joined the demonstration, um, as was said, is to kind of set the tone for how people were wanted to respond to a, you know, fascistic and authoritarian and xenophobic bigot who had just, you know, been put into office. And so I think, you know, I'm proud that people were able to set that tone of resistance and opposition and solidarity. Um, but I think we went into it with a lot of false premises. Um, and I think reflecting back critically, like that's pretty important for us to acknowledge and acknowledge you know, publicly. And by publicly, I mean, like, within our own circles that are looking to improve tactics and strategies. Um, but I think going into a street demonstration with um, affinity groups who don't know each other um, and the assumption that the police are going to react in a certain way is is probably something that people are less likely to do going forward. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, as someone that was kind of new, I was definitely um, told, you know, there's not going to be a mass arrest, a lot of there's a lot of downplaying of the potential risks. So I'm definitely with you on that. Michael. Yeah. And, and I think that comes from a place of, of, you know, good sage advice from people who had been watching the actions of DC police for over a decade. You know, I, I moved to DC in 2002. Um, and, you know, we, it was the height of the anti-war movement and the kind of middle to tail end of the anti-globalization movement. And, you know, after going to dozens and dozens and dozens of demonstrations that played out relatively the same way, you, you get to, you know, a bit of a comfortability with how it's going to operate and how the police are going to respond to you and the level of preparation or physical defense, et cetera, et cetera. But um, anyone who was in the streets the morning of January 20th, 2017, 
um, whether they were you know, blocking bridges or engaged in the checkpoint blockades or engaged in the anti-fascist, anti-capitalist march, I think everyone was had a bit of a moment of like, what the hell? This is not how the police are used to reacting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I will say that um, I wasn't very experienced with protests in the United States. I went to like uh, maybe a handful when I was uh, in Egypt during the Arab Spring and I went to like the big one in Tahrir Square. Um, and, uh, you know, that was pretty much like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that had like occupied a main area and the police, what, what, at that point it was like, what the fuck are they going to do? But I, so I was definitely, uh, kind of went in like not thinking, you know, not knowing much about protests and about really about much about police. I had like, you know, preformed political ideas about police, but nothing, uh, nothing tactile <laughs> that would soon earn on, uh, January 20th. But, um, I think that uh, one of the interesting things about the the trial, like Ella mentioned, how ridiculous it was. I remember uh, it sticks in my mind uh, because uh, I knew like one other person at the protest, and uh, and we were coworkers. And uh, at one of my pre-trial hearings, um, like Jennifer Kirkoff was like saying like, "Oh," and he was emailing uh, one of the planners, alleged planners. And, uh, and that like, uh, she, like the judge was like, what does it say? And like, and she had to read this really boring nonprofit bullshit email <laughs> that like we exchanged at work that it's completely fucking meaningless. And I was just kind of, of my, embarrassed. That's uh, one of my favorite stories <laughs> out of your whole situation is yeah. the, the judge be like, what does it say? And them having to be like, huh? Oh, <laughs> um, okay. Let me read it. Yeah, TPS reports bullshit. Um, but um, she pulled out a medical gauze kit, uh, like a medical kit with gauze and other things, as if it was like evidence of this giant terrorist conspiracy. Yeah, um, you're being safe. But I think that's like those are important. Like those are some of the moments I think. Just going back to the original question, that stand out. Like the the absurdity. The, the absurd ways in which logic was twisted. So, right. you know, like yeah. one of the things that really stands out to me in one of the many perfunctory, you know, um, kind of bullshit court appearances was um, was the prosecutor reading a segment of someone's email, which if you just remember, that was basically someone coordinating their dog sitter. Um, and, you know, her basic argument was like, you know, the email said something like, you know, hey, dog sitter, I'm going to D.C., you know, on the, uh, you know, on the 20th, you know, I might be back on the 21st, but I also might be back on the 24th. Like, I don't really know. Can you watch my dog? And, you know, the argument being made is like, look, this person is, you know, conspiring to have their dog watch so that they can be in jail. And it's like, no, they're not. Like, this person's just being a responsible human, caring yeah. for another life and making sure that in the event they don't return home either you know from arrest or for anything that the dog doesn't wither and die it's like that's not evidence of a conspiracy that's evidence of being like a responsible living adult it, um, it, it was so mccarthyan because it was so shameless and so clear that so much of it was a witch hunt that it's odd that nobody you didn't you didn't have a scene like during the mccarthy trial where someone was like at long last have you no shame like <laughs> it's so weird that you didn't have things like that on the on the news but I guess we, I don't know, I guess we live in a lot more um, vindictive time, perhaps. Would you yeah. like to challenge Donald Trump for the um, the prize of having that be the most, uh, the, the worst witch hunt in U.S. history? Because I believe he's made that claim several times that his yeah. own prosecution right. is the worst witch hunt in U.S. history. But I think right. now that he's not in office, you might be able to kind of vie for that uh, title. Yeah. yeah. Um. 
Yeah. So, I mean, so quick question. How many selfies did you get with the cops on J20? <laughs> Personally, zero. <laughs> yeah, per- yeah. I didn't get any either. J20 or like you getting kicked in the in the nose with a cop or like getting beaten, getting tased in the neck. I think it's safe to say the only cops participating were probably a handful of undercovers, unlike yeah. the storming of the Capitol, which likely had hundreds of police actively involved. 38 so far counting. Yeah. But, but uh, so Casey, I mean, I know you, you might feel left out this episode because you well, didn't get uh, here's, here's my main contribution to the day. What's that? that? I'm, pretty, I'm yeah. pretty sure I uh, was having a hard time uh, getting in touch oh, with you yeah. during yeah. the uh, events, which was bothering me, and so I think I, I may have texted. You. I think I may have texted you. Hey, don't kill the president. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You you definitely you texted something like that, and uh, yeah, I'm glad they didn't pull that one. <laughs> yeah, for, fortunately, uh, I don't think anyone had had. had oh, you were not for killing the president, so that's yeah. that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, that was a fun joke for me to find out about uh, a year later when I got yeah, my. Well, I my after I found out, you got a ripped. I was like, "Oh, so no, oh god, oh no." Yeah. Um, but uh, so I mean, I guess you know the the big like juxtaposition. Maybe I guess there are several uh, over the past few years, but the the main juxtaposition, I suppose, is the Capitol invasion on January sixth. Um, you know, uh, what, 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 what was your experience watching that, Michael? Well, I mean, so it, it was surreal. Um, for one, I had it on in the background while I was giving a digital security training for someone. And then, um, I was looking at my phone more and more. And then I was like, well, I kind of want to end this training so I can like watch this thing. Cause this is like, like I'm getting, you know, 40 messages on Signal and I'm getting 50 messages on Keybase and the wire chat is blowing up. I'm like, something is clearly going on that I need to pay attention to. Um, so I kind of shifted gears really rapidly. And, and one of the jobs that I do is, um, well, it's not a job because there's no money involved. But one of the things that I do is we track uh, politi- we, we, we track cases of people um, who are facing felony political violence um, trials. And, and I, strangely enough and intersectionally enough, I began this project in a sense to make sense of the J-20 prosecutions. And now we're, we're well-established and we have lots of people, blah, blah, blah. But so I was um, – so my experience of kind of watching the Capitol was thinking of it in terms of, of data analysis and saying like how can we turn this really dynamic, um, fast-moving event into – something that people can talk about tangibly without speaking in generalities. So as soon as, um, you know, as soon as people were doing that, I was already communicating with our team of like 30 people trying to figure out, you know, who wants to work on this, how we're going to collect cases, you know, blah, blah, blah. So my brain immediately went into like, how do we understand this? And we've been Mm -hmm. tracking those cases ever since. And as of right now, um, we tracked uh, 201 um, current uh, defendants from the Capitol, the capital siege and every day we add like about a dozen to that list and we'll probably do that for the next few weeks or months as the u.s attorney and local prosecutors kind of roll out these prosecutions and you know we can talk about how it relates to our own charging but you know one of the really interesting things we see now is after the first wave of you know low-hanging fruit uh, is that all, all of a sudden we're seeing a bunch of people charged with conspiracy um, mm. And just so we're clear, like I'm an abolitionist. I imagine most people on this call are. Uh, I don't want to see more people in cages. I don't think it helps. 
Um, I don't think it's tactical or strategic to just lock people away and assume that they're somehow going to get better. Um, and, 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 you know, so it's a little bit of an odd position following these and getting, yeah. you know, feeling like people are getting their, 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 what's that phrase? Comeuppance. Um, mm-hmm. It was like, a, you're getting what's coming. They're come yeah. Comeuppance, yeah. Comeuppance, yeah. Getting their comeuppance. Yeah. And, and you know, a little bit of schadenfreude feeling, but um, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty torn on, on the net positive benefit of locking up 200, uh, you know, 200 mega bigots. I don't, I don't really see that hap- that helping anything. Yeah, it's it's the type of thing where am I going to cry because they're getting locked up? No. Am I going to cry if the MAGA bigots attack the police? No. Uh, but the one thing I can say is I don't think that the police should be or anyone should be in the business of doing what the police do. Right. You know? And that's and that's kind of like what – and so I had this conversation with like you know family and they were like, oh, this must be, feel really good, you know, given on your experience that all these people are getting locked up. And I was like, not not really. You know, like, I, I don't think that anyone should be subject to police violence. Like, I'm not like, yay, the right is getting, like, beaten up. Like, that's not, I don't know. Yeah. Like, you know, sure, there's, like, a bit of giddy, childish, you know, like, you know, feeling you get. Like, seeing someone slip and fall who's a stranger. Like, you know, it makes you kind of <laughs> laugh. But I, I don't think you watch live events. Right. Well, no, like, like, because I would, you know, I, I, I don't think violence against these, these bigots is uh, – is shameful because of it. If it was like comrades out there uh, committing, you know, fighting these guys back, I'd be like, hell yeah. It's, it's the, so the, the frustration doesn't come from like, I feel bad that these people are getting beat up, like, you know, sympathy, which I know it, it's not for you, Michael, but it's, it's that it's seeing the cops do what they do. I do feel yeah. like there are a lot of people that are getting educated about police that, that had some yeah. Yeah. Uh, mistaken assumptions. Um, or there's a I lot know. of people that are like, whoa, the police are kind of heavy handed sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. Well, but uh, Ella, what did, what did you think uh, when you were watching, uh, you know, the, the Capitol siege or coup attempt or whatever people want to call it? I mean, I'm sure it was um, uh, surreal for you as well. Yeah, I think surreal is definitely the right, right word. Um, it seemed like a sort of like slow motion build up to what happened at the Capitol because I had kind of been watching for the past few weeks how the Proud Boys and all of these other guys kept going to D.C. Um, and all the blue check liberals would tell people to stay home, um, you know, and so they kind of had a, you know, run around the city for a few weeks leading up to this, which I think really emboldened them. Um, and, you know, maybe it was the right call not to confront them the day of the Capitol because I don't really think it's anti-fascist job to protect uh, government buildings. Absolutely. Um, but I was kind of thinking about like how I think um, had maybe the liberals showed up the, the couple weeks before that, you know, maybe it wouldn't have happened. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't I think some people are saying it was like a complete failure on their on their part. And I don't necessarily see it that way because um, I, I yeah, I think, you know, we all know what direct action feels like. And once you get a taste of it, um, you kind of, you know, you you have an anti-system outlook from that point forward. Um, and I think that's really the direction seems like the right's going in. So, yeah, I think this is probably a, a really bad thing for the Republican Party, but probably really good for like the Proud Boy types. Um, I think they're going to grow from this, unfortunately. Absolutely. It just feels like, you know, like I feel like the, when you think about like the radical right in the United States, most of their 
like touchstone moments have to are like you know either stupid shit like the the bundy like occupying a national park office that was empty anyway that stuff or like like you know gross like very obvious government overreach like waco or ruby ridge which are like these mythological things in like the american right but like this was just this seems like it's just pure victory the all of the optics are like perfect for emboldening people to want to engage and organize and that's really scary i think and i think people should absolutely take that seriously i think you're right ella um but did anyone notice anything different on January 6th in terms of police response versus what you remember from January 6th? Cause I feel like I noticed a few, not to nitpick. I feel like I noticed a few subtle differences. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think anyone watching, I, I think anyone watching that sees the, the lack of people being carted away in flex cuffs and school buses, mm-hmm. you know, again, like we may have began the J20 of 2017 March with the false pretense that DC didn't do mass arrests, but when you have thousands of people trying to break into a building, um, you know, and again, I'm not advocating for police to arrest more people, but it certainly seems like it would have been strategic for them at that point to, to surround the Capitol lawn, to declare the assembly illegal, and then to slowly shrink the perimeter of that kettle until they encased and then arrested everyone. I mean, the fact that that didn't happen, even when they had announced a curfew and there weren't people you know, go- going home for that curfew, the fact that we didn't see just a surrounding and mass arrest, I think, is, is pretty shocking to a lot of people. And even people who don't know the history of D.C. police's mass arrest policy and censure for that mass arrest, like – I mean, again, like just, you know, using like a normal barometer, people like my mom, you know, you know, she's like, why are they arresting these people? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> there, there are pessimistic answers, like, you know, cops and clan go hand in hand. And there are practical answers, like, you know, if you surround a bunch of people, many of whom have concealed weapons and throw a bunch of flashbangs and CS gas into the crowd, you're likely to make more violence. You know, there's all sorts of reasons. Um, well, and also, yeah. and also that you'd risk like hurting a bunch of fellow officers who were in the, the crowd. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, it's, not only is it shocking that 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 didn't happen. I mean, the main thing is that it's telling, right? Yeah. I know this is something that you actually uh, wrote about recently in uh, uh, Truth Dig, I think, Ella, about the number of police, the sheer number of police that were uh, involved in the Capitol raid. Yeah, I think it's up to 38 now, um, and a few more come out every day. And these are just the ones that police are admitting to um, investigating. Um, I mean, they were coming from California, from Seattle, from Texas. They were flying all over the country to come to this thing. And there's definitely cases of them actually breaking into the Capitol. It's not like they just attended um, Trump's rally. So that's quite a juxtaposition with our case. Um, (laughs) Because, you know, they actually worked with the right wing to prosecute us, um, whereas they, in this case, worked with the right wing to, like, quote unquote, conspire to break into the Capitol. So. And beyond yeah. even active duty police, like one of the things that we're looking at in the prosecution project, kind of looking at the track and these data is we have tons of people who have, for lack of a better word, like public office. So we have, you know, we obviously have um, police, we have soldiers. Uh, we have, you know, ma- official militia commanders, we have councilmen, we have, you know, people who serve um, all sorts of, you know, we have a county commissioner, um, people who kind of are in all sorts of levels of government, you know, min- municipal, state government, 
um, you know, we have, you know, firefighters and all these people that kind of, you know, work in governmental bodies. Um, yeah, West Virginia delegates, National Guard, you know, all sorts of kind of different parts, which I think is, you know, representative of part of the problem, which, you know, people like me have been saying for, and again, it sounds bizarre, you know, I'm almost 40, but to say I've been saying this for 20 years really makes me feel stupid. But, you know, for 20 years, we've been saying these people are, you know, well immersed in law enforcement, well immersed in the military, um, and provide some, you know, a, a fair bit of insecurity to our society. And finally, finally, it seems that people are kind of asking that question, right? You know, the right. National Guard just had to pull back, what, 30 deployed um, soldiers because they found links to white supremacist activity. Um, you know, we, we, you know, as Ella said, we have these, you know, people who are, who were arrested in the Capitol siege, who have links to police. Um, you know, we're seeing these things. I was actually contacted by the department of defense, like, um, maybe a month ago that were, you know, they basically cold called me and said, Hey, we're trying to, you know, find Nazis in our ranks. Can you provide us with some guidance for that? And I said, well, you know, we share an interest in not liking Nazis, but I don't really want to, you know, participate in this for a number of political and ethical reasons. Um, but it does seem like we we as a society have turned a corner and people all of a sudden are kind of like, hey, you know what, maybe we should get, uh, you know, violent genocide promoting people out of positions where we train to, you know, train them to use heavy arms and explosives. Because that, yeah. that seems like a logical, you know, policy. One would think. But that's why we're seeing the pretty fierce propaganda campaign, I think, because um, they're recognizing that they're losing legitimacy from this because they didn't do the one job they were supposed to do, <laughs> right? Like you had one job, utterly yeah. failed. Um, so yeah, I'm seeing a lot of stuff in like the mainstream media of just like sob stories of cops being attacked by the right. And um, DC Police Union put out a letter um, with the contact of Greg Pemberton, who is the detective of our case, <laughs> Nice. Of them I, I didn't know that. For more, yeah, making a plea for more resources because it's clear the Capitol Police were underfunded, you know, and that's why they uh, just let Nazis waltz into the Capitol. I mean, we know that the, a police underfunding is an epidemic in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yep. They can hardly they can hardly afford their tanks and combat gear. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, some of the tanks are just several years old, but no, I mean, it is one of the key questions though, is like the level of like, you know, the level of conspiracy, one might say, but because, you know, on the one hand, it could be explained just by the virtue of like police were expecting a mostly white, mostly right wing audience. And they have certain notions about how these people behave versus those other people. And therefore they just weren't prepared. Right. Despite all of the, you know, the, the uh, kind of intelligence that they had gotten about this, they just didn't, they just thought everyone was going to be perfectly well behaved because that's how white people are. Um, but on the other hand, there's like this love, this like, you know, what, what I think in, in total you might suspect is just like a, a, a moron's uh, perception of what a coup is. Because like I, I feel like on the one hand, you, you do have like these, you know, there's like panic buttons in Ayanna Presley's office that were ripped out. The National Guard response seems to have been delayed. The cops basically just backed away and opened the gates for people in certain instances. Um, and, and so there, there does seem to be like this notion that like, all right, if we can get these people into the, into the, into the Congress, then, you know, who knows what step two is, but step three is definitely, uh, we win. Right. Um, mm-hmm. did, 
like I don't know what did, what did you all think? What, do you think this is, was this was? I'm not asking you to uh, validate a conspiracy theory, but or uh, for for any kind of prosecutor. But I'm I'm asking, do you think that like how what is what is your perception of like I don't know the broader? What, what, it, would you say that this was an attempted coup, or would you say this is like the right wing being the right wing and the police being dipshits? The the idea that this is like an attempted coup, I think, is like a bit overspun. Um, you know, I mean, many, I'm sure many anarchists are like bothered by the use, the overuse of the term insurrectionary. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of kind of mislabeling of this. Um, I, I think it's a coup if you believe that, you know, a social movement of let's, let's call them a few thousand, you know, in DC physically and a few hundred thousand around the country are able to kind of overthrow the, the, the government. I, I think that that is, you know, certainly, you know, as a, as a revolutionary, we believe that collective power can lead to structural and social change. But I think there's a really miscalculation on the far right that, you know, for lack of a better word, that like we are behind them, right? I think there's a notion that like they are, as they've said, the tip of the spear in this like, you know, revolution. But I don't think that's actually true. Um, I think that there's not a lot behind them. Um, and sure, there's a lot of people who like Trump and there's a lot of people who hate Biden. But I don't think that's the same proportion of people who are pro disrupting the democratic process as it is and and you know intimidating people into whatever position because i think that that's something that you know love it or, or hate it the you know american democratic system which kind of maintains this republic is based on the the notion that like politics is largely a nonviolent event and again like i have my own criticisms of that and my own you know ways i can point to that not being true but but i don't think most people like your average person who's pro trump is pro attacking senators and police. I think like when you attack police, you lose the support of a lot of a lot of the base of the, the of the right. Right. So so, so I don't know. I, I think it's not a coup. I think it's you know it's it's a petulant demonstration. It's like we lost and we're angry about it and we're like not willing to kind of turn the page on it. And to me, it shows like a degree of uh, yeah of like I don't know childish petulance more than like a desire or a or a strategic you know changing of, of power. Yeah. Should should we be careful or protective about about the word coup? Our I, usage I mean, of it. I'm not really like an. I mean, I'm an advocate of of fundamental change in the social order. Yes, but I'm not like an advocate of coups because like that's not the way in which like positive social change typically happens. Coup. At least oh no, 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 I didn't mean in the in the. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't mean to be reserved in trying to engage in a coup. I mean, it's sometimes it seems like we're 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 <laughs> wanting to resist. We're wanting to resist yielding. It's like we don't want to give them that they did a coup. It's like we're not we don't want to give that to them. Like uh, it legitimizes them. Is that is that is that yeah, the fear? I, I think that's yeah. yes. I think okay. calling it a coup oversells it. Okay. Yeah. I see it as a flexing of muscles or a show of force. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it was organized well enough. You mean like to... bluster? It's like bluster a little bit. Yeah. For me, it's not a coup unless the CIA is involved. Uh, no, 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 but I mean, there, there were clearly some fascists that had plans. Like yeah. the, there's the image of the guy with the flexi cuffs, uh, or the most people would think of them as like really thick zip ties, which, as J20 defendants, we're all familiar with yeah, the, uh, the the flexi cuffs. Um, but like when I saw that the photo of that guy, I was like, that guy's probably a cop. <laughs> but um, but like 
I there seems to have been some people that were planning to I don't know kidnap, take hostages, things like that. And I, honestly, I haven't been following that particular element of this as closely as maybe I should have. Maybe you all have heard about this particular those particular individuals that were doing that, but. Um, that's that was pretty like well, I guess maybe this could have gone a different way. <laughs> yeah, the, reason, the reason I can't, the reason I can, the reason I can kind of see it as a coup is because if the if the original idea was just this petulant like thrown together show of muscle, I think as it snowballed, you probably attracted a lot of people who wanted to do a coup. Uh, so I there were probably a lot of people who would have would have been down for that in that in that group but again i just i don't think they were organized enough and i do follow the proud the proud boys telegram um just to get a pulse on things um they had a poll last night that said um would you rather have biden as president or a military coup and 93 percent of them said military coup (laughs) um so it's definitely a you know it's it's what the far right wants um whether or not they're able to do that or have the numbers for it now now the answer is no um but i they think uh, a growing percentage of people are disillusioned on both sides of the spectrum and i think as they ramp up their anti-system rhetoric i think that it's going to be appealing for an increasing number of people yeah i agree with that just like from the prosecution angle um yeah. you know and, and again like you know the 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 core narrative disagreement in the j20 case is this coordination versus conspiracy and you know the prosecutor saying j20 defendants were conspiring and 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 people pushing back on that um you know what we see in the in the affidavits that are rolling out now from the capital case is it does seem like you know there is textbook conspiracies people setting up communication channels there's you know um people setting up you know in a sense like hierarchies within their little units there's command and control operations you know we now know of like oath keepers and three percenters and and proud boys who were holding you know direct leadership positions and had subordinates or they were giving you know tactical orders to so you know again I, I don't need more people to be charged with conspiracy i don't think that's helpful or 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 good in any sense but I think if you're looking for an example of what a social movement conspiracy looks like, like that's a pretty clear example of one. Um, and, and, you know, there is a lot of it. There's a lot of information coming out now about, you know, coordination. I mean, you know, people setting up, you know, for example, uh, radio, um, radio bands, you know, in violation of the FCC, but, you know, to kind of coordinate in, in real time um, and stay off of traditional communication networks, you know, that is, as close to conspiracy as one would get, I would imagine. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I I know that the prosecution project has been tracking this. You mentioned that earlier. Um, how does this compare to like, not just J20, but like the George Floyd BLM related protests yeah. over the last year? Well, I mean, for one, the defendants are f- just different. I mean, the defendants are like, almost <laughs> tw- like on, on the whole, almost like 20 years older. You know, the, the average ages, I could like calculate the exact one in a, in a couple minutes, but um, let's see, the average age for capital arrestees with a sample size of um, 202 cases, 201 cases is 41 years old. The average age is 40.58. So, you know, I, I can I can calculate the Floyd ones in a second, but the average person arrested over the summer is certainly not 41 years old. Yeah. Um, and and you know the 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 other really obvious trend 
mm-hmm. is that um, the defendants arrested in the Capitol siege are almost entirely white and almost entirely from out of state. Um, you know, if you remember in the beginning parts of the Floyd uprising, you know, um, Trump and the mayor of Minneapolis famously went on TV and were like, everyone being arrested, everyone arrested is an outside agitator coming to our city to stir up trouble, which like putting aside the like fundamentally racist and anti-Semitic like logic that 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 employs it just wasn't it was just false and you know what yeah. we found is that during the floyd uprisings is that most people who were arrested were residents of their community demonstrating in their community when we look at the capital cases that's not that's not the case right almost all the people came from out of town there's not even that many defendants from like maryland and virginia which mm. is nowhere you typically would expect but you know the defendants from like iowa and california and florida texas you know all over the country and so when you look at the difference i mean there's way more people arrested in the floyd um, demonstrations. They're arrested way more violently. They didn't kill anywhere near as many uh, officers or injure as many officers. And, you know, they're just, the Floyd arrestees are younger, more diverse racially and and from their own communities. And the Capitol people are, you know, 40 and, you know, on average, you know, 41 years old white folk from out of town. And that, that's a fundamental difference. Just I'm looking at the, um, the average age of Floyd arrestees and this is based on a sample size of like of um of quite a quite large sample size is 27. Yeah. Wow. So like that's what's the difference between 27 and 41? That's a pretty wide that's a pretty big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. What about in terms of charges and um prison yeah. sentence like I like- mean so we don't know anything on sentence yet cuz right cuz they haven't been sentenced right, right. progress through trial but certainly the the unif I mean, part of it is that the uniformity is different. So like the people arrested in the Capitol are more or less all getting similar charges, except for those who are kind of being pulled out as ringleaders. Um, it certainly seems that, you know, and we know this from our own prosecution, that you're arrested and charged on a Monday, you know, it might be a couple months until the actual charges are levied through a superseding or you know, through an indictment and the superseding indictment. So yeah. most of the people we're looking at now, we're only looking at their charges via the criminal complaint that will then be superseded by an indictment. So my assumption is that by the time the indictments roll out, that a lot of these things which are now, um, you know, and I say relatively, now, now which are relatively minor crimes, are going to be at, you know, a, a saddled with additional things. So, you know, for example, a lot of people right now are charged with um, uh, 181752. It's a really common charge, unlawful entry or restricted grounds. Um, but a lot of them are then going to be enhanced to have conspiracy for that or incitement. So once we see all that laid out, I think the I, I think the capital arrestees will actually have pretty steep cases to fight against. But at present, they're facing relatively superficial charges, um, whereas the Floyd arrestees are facing a lot m- more serious charges. Hmm. Well, uh, we're coming up about on time, but uh, I do want to ask, you know, for for everyone really what what do you think or hope anti-fascist organizing and anti-fascist action uh will and should look like under a biden administration i mean on the one hand you know the the state um you know michael you start off by saying you're an abolitionist the the state is going to keep doing all of the things that we despise that it does right uh biden is uh not going to stop incarcerating people unfortunately um you know he's not going to really confront white supremacy or environmental collapse or any of the things that like, I think people are really concerned about. Um, but on the other hand, there, there, you know, now that there isn't a fascist at the, or at the head of state, 
there now it seems and you know from what i understand is that the a lot of right-wing movements are kind of have lost faith in trump like you know it turns out q isn't a real thing and there is no divine plan to deliver i don't know what the fuck but um uh you know the so it seems like there's a bit of fragmentation going on on the right um but that only means that they're kind of being scattered they don't seem to be dying down in intensity uh for instance ella i know you really recently interviewed anti-fascists that are tracking for instance independent homesteading fascist cells and i'd love to hear more about that but what does it what does it mean to try to oppose um you know fascism you know, given all of the dynamics there are under a post-Trump Biden administration? I don't think Biden's DOJ is going to act significantly different from Trump's DOJ. Um, I think we have to remember that one of the first thing Obama uh, did was go after whistleblowers. You know, yeah. Biden's probably going to have some new some new agenda to crack down on both sides of the spectrum to appear fair. Um in terms of what we do, I think, you know, we keep doing the things that have been working uh, when it makes sense to confront them in mass. We should do that. Um, I also think that it's sort of much like after Charlottesville right now, I think there's more social consequences to being on the far right. So I think making use of doxing um, and like trying to I mean, I'm a little conflicted in getting them fired because then that means that they have more time to participate in fascist activity. Uh, but I think just trying to be strategic about the way we're using doxing. Um, and I guess also just, I think we need to think more about like base building as anti-fascism because I think more people are disillusioned with the electoral process um, and we need to give people an outlet. Um, yeah, we need to we need to be publicly presenting alternatives to the state as anti-fascist work, I think, um, because a lot of people have like very have social grievances. and They don't know what to do with them. So they'll just be subsumed in the Democratic Party or maybe even people will be pulled into the far right. Um, so I think. Yeah, uh, material base building as anti-fascism um, is a good way forward. I mean, I want to I want to bring you in here, Michael. But Ella, you just reminded me. There's a friend of mine and Casey's uh, actually, the, but they they recently changed like their profile picture. It has like a filter that says "sometimes a bitch, always an anti-fascist." Um, but then their cover image is like from the inauguration of like Joe Biden getting sworn in, and I'm like, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I, know, I know, I just feel like who uh, is this? Huh? I, I'm not going to say uh, their name on the air. But I also had a question uh, going off of, uh, do you know how, did you like how I seemed interested in what you had to say, Adam, to catch yes. you off guard so I could cut in? Um, Ella, do you, do you see, do you foresee uh, problems with um, things cooling a little bit on the left now that almost as if there's a sigh of relief uh now, I mean, I know a lot, a lot of us on the far left, it's no, there's no change. But for some people who are perhaps new to uh, radical politics or something like that, may um, feel a bit of relief. Is the resistance right? Uh, but but there may be people who are relieved now that uh, Joe Biden uh, is in there instead of Trump, and there may need to be uh, we may need to do a, a bit of maintenance on um, keeping the the fire uh, in there. 
Well, I, think, I think we can expect the liberals to go back to brunch. I think we can right. mostly agree on that. Um, but I think anyone to the left of liberals, I, I foresee people still being activated. Um, okay. I guess during the winter, things always calm down a bit. Sure, um, sure, sure. But since like underlying grievances haven't been addressed since the summer, um, it's not really a matter of like if there will be another uprising within the next four years. I think it's a matter of when. And right. um, I feel somewhat optimistic that at least you know, millennials and Gen Z will keep up the pressure. Cool. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's sort of my read on it too, is that, you know, we don't know. Uh, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Um, and I would say for the exact same reasons that Ella said, is that the fundamental reasons which got people agitated, you know, are the same. And, and for many of us will get worse. So the economic precarity, you know, the income inequality, the ecological crisis, you know, all these things are going to get worse. And, and I think, you know, I'm no, um, I'm no Maoist, certainly, but but I do think there is something to be said for the idea of, you know, when people are on a precipice, um, you know, giving them a little push in the wrong direction sometimes activates. And so, you know, I'm certainly not the first person to say that, you know, one of the worst things for, um, w- one of the worst things we as a society could do to kind of prevent fundamental structural change is to move from four years of far right president to four years of a center right president. Because for many people, they're like, that's fine now. And they can like disengage for four years um, and then, you know, just make sure the Democrats. Yeah. And so I think that that's, you know, fundamentally bad. And, you know, there's something, you know, to say, you know, we want Trump to win because people are getting angry and that leads to change is is also not a solution. That's like, you know, closer to like an eco-fascist perspective. It's like, yeah, let him win. Like a bunch of people will be put in cages and die and lose fundamental liberties. But sure, like the society will get better. And and that's not really what I'm, what I'm advocating, but, but. You know, again, I'm not certainly not the first person to point out that, you know, when you have, uh, you know, four years like we just had that are then followed by, you know, a a center right candidate like Biden, um, you know, not much is going to change. And, you know, the all of the problems are still going to be there and people are just going to see for four years. And if you talk about the far right specifically, they're just going to get more. They're just going to feel more marginalized. And then four years later, you know, we'll be in the same situation we're in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess in closing, um, uh, by your own experience with the J20 trial and all of the lessons and experiences you've had since then, uh, do you have any recommendations to anti-fascists? I mean, and this could even be like, uh, you know, what what would you say to your, what, what, if you could do anything, if you could know anything on the day of J20 that you know now? Uh, what would you know? What would you want yourself to know? I would want myself to know, hey, you should encrypt your phone. Uh, that was a that was a mistake on my part. But um, no, I mean, anything, any kind of recommendation to anti-fascists or advice to anti-fascists based on your experience with J20 and all of the work that you're doing now. Uh, we can start with uh, you, Ella, if that's OK. Mm-hmm. In terms of prosecutions i would say don't listen to your lawyer if they're not a radical lawyer <laughs> um because they're going to try to keep they're, they're going to try to treat your case like some individualized um, entity i would say talk to uh radical legal workers who have been involved in this for decades um and they'll tell you to work together uh, we really out organized the U.S. government in our case. I think yeah. if we if we didn't um, put those first trials, the, those trials first of people who had sort of easier cases to win, um, I mean, who knows what would have happened. So um, for defendants, yeah. that would be my advice. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would say the same, you know, some of the same things. Certainly, um, you know, one of the shifts I think we saw is is people acknowledging the basics of digital security, as you kind of just implied. Yeah. Um, you know, re- if people if if people who are interested in security haven't read the government's disclosure on cell phone analysis from the J20 trials, they should. I can provide it if anyone wants to see it. Um, it it's probably embarrassing for people who are talked about in there who they're like, hey, this person didn't have a lock on their phone or a password or et cetera, et cetera. But, but it breaks down the kind of um, what they were able to get and not get. So yeah, certainly practicing basic digital security is is one, one million percent essential. And I've given dozens and dozens of workshops um, just in the past you know year about people trying to figure out some of those things. So Planning, planning for that is certainly important. Um, and generally, you know, if we're seeing anything useful from the capital cases, it's that nearly every single person is being prosecuted on the basis of their own social media. Um, you know, information they provided to other people about their own actions is being used to convict them or, you know, to charge them rather. So, yeah, so certainly practicing basic digital security. Uh, and, and like Ella said, you know, certainly working collectively, you know, I think um, assuming that. The, you know, if it, assuming that in the case of a mass arrest, that the only kind of plea bargain that would ever be entertained is one that's a non-cooperating plea, kind of having those be the, you know, the presumed state of readiness as opposed to exceptional. So, you know, everyone assumes that that's the way it is. And again, during the anti-globalization era, like that was something that we were able to popularize really easily so that you knew if you were ever mass arrested that, you know, it would, that no one would give names, no one would provide ID, and that it would be a collective defense. Everyone knew that. Um, somewhere between the early 2000s and now that that's kind of disappeared. Yeah. And then the third thing I would say is like that people should have a predetermined response plan, you know, whether that's to feed their dog or to not get fired from their job or to get medication they need or, or, or who to call, et cetera. But people should plan um, for the worst case scenarios. And, you know, I, I've heard the, the term arrest will, you know, similar to like a, a living will, but just having some sort of, you know, document available that, that tells people, you know, what do you do if, if things kind of spiral out of control. And I help people sometimes set those up. Uh, but I think specifically in this era of FBI doing a lot of door knocks and people being arrested um, and just general um, sporadic, uh, you know, sporadic precarity that people need to take that pretty seriously and kind of plan today as if they're not going to be able to plan for tomorrow. Not because yeah. some big apocalypse is coming, but because um, that's the way smart people plan. Yeah. I completely agree uh, about uh, the like the 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 DC's disclosure of like the the cell phone data and that decision. I mean, I, I remember it was really bizarre learning that uh, you know I had a password on my phone and I thought that's all you needed, well, that, which is stupid. But I remember uh, I was kind of like taken aback when I realized that my phone was like shipped to Israel. <laughs> they they broke into it in Israel. And that's great shipped. shift. What's that? That's uh, because the company that breaks into most iPhones, Grayshift, is an Israeli-based company. I'm assuming yeah. that's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I assume that that's correct as well. Uh, but it was just like a really surreal thing. Like, no, like people people are gonna, you know, the, the, that that uh, it wasn't hard to do. I mean, I don't think because they had like stuff on my cell phone that I didn't know was on my cell phone. That's how much data your cell phone collects about you, which is. Uh, something people need to be a little more sober about. Mm-hmm. But um, has all the times that you uh, that you door dashed Jack in the Box. Sure, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that was a relevant part of the conspiracy, unfortunately. <laughs> and you had it was just like, uh, come on, yeah. how did they read that in court? No, but like, I mean, great shift machines really can recover like deleted signal messages, for example. You know, people people are like, oh, I use signal for all my communication, and that secures everything. It's like, yeah, that, that that's great. Like, that does prevent someone from listening in 
and intercepting that text message from point A to point B. But if someone seizes your cell phone and there's no lock on it and there's no lock on signal, then it fundamentally misrepresents the threat model, right? Someone looking yeah. at your phone doesn't care that it's encrypted because they're not sending anything. So they don't need, it doesn't matter. They're not yeah. attacking the encryption because they're holding your physical phone in their hand. That's so, so like, weird. you know, yeah. That's so weird that Israel would harbor such a nefarious organization. <laughs> usually they get up democracy. A gray shift so, is a very yeah. successful company. They are they are booming in, in clients. Isn't Waze? Waze is also Israeli, right? It, it, I know it was. But. I know that like the, these sort of machines, there's a story which came out recently. I forget who put it out, but that these are being increasingly purchased by high schools and that there was like a large number of high schools now that uh, had purchased these machines for you know, Jesus. cracking student cell phones. Mm. That's oh my up. God. Wow. Yeah. Oh, holy shit. I'm surprised yeah. uh, Whole Foods isn't going to start doing that now that it's run by Amazon. <laughs> oh no. Don't give them ideas. They have like a coin star and then right next to it is a little... But they already... You know, whatever they, did you hear that when uh, when they took over Whole Foods, they installed this uh, thing that would block an app? I'm, uh, you can hear I'm a real techie because I it's a thing, Michael. <laughs> and technically it is. Uh, but no, uh, but it blocks the app where you can like price compare from different stores <laughs> what and i was like i was like that's the most petty thing i've ever heard jeffrey <laughs> how dare you how dare you but uh anyway, no, i, I interrupt my consumerism yeah i uh, i think that's it for this episode of future left but um this was a great conversation uh michael ella thanks so much for joining us yeah thanks for having us yeah thanks absolutely. for having me absolutely this is cool and for our listeners, uh, we'll see you next time on Future Left. I'm Adam. And I'm Casey. Bye, y'all. Bye, everybody. Bye.